Well, every time I'm flying there and back again, I pick up more travel stories from you. Uh, thank goodness I had a smooth flight home yesterday so I could be with you today. And it went better for me than it did for Donna the week before, coming home from a visit with family. But we've all probably got some airline travel stories. Um, and, and they probably take quite the range of, of things you never expected, and yet you're never surprised when it happens. The idea of flying home, you can't wait to get home, but you have a connecting flight or two. Imagine always connecting to the next flight, but never actually reaching your final destination. Imagine just going from one airport to the next. You know how they make you, like if you're going from San Diego to Eugene, the direct route is apparently through Denver or through Texas or you name it. Imagine just spending your life in an airport terminal. I mean, there is that Tom Hanks movie about the terminal, but uh, he just stays in the same terminal the whole time. But in this case, you actually get your hope up. Oh, I'm on my flight, or my flight's on time. Oh, never mind, let's get off the plane. Um, there's always one thing or another. And the wild thing about this would be, not only do you never reach your destination, making a connection for another, for another, missing a connection, getting rebooked, the weird thing about this scenario is that, in this case, your baggage is never lost. Hey, all right, it's going to take us forever to get home. We might never make it, but our baggage is with us the whole time. Problem is, every time you make a connection, every time you board a or leave a plane, they hand you another piece of luggage. They hand you another piece of baggage. So by the time you're on your third, fourth, five, fifth, seventeenth connection, you are just dragging everything around with you. It's like, yeah, you won't, you, we won't lose your luggage because we're going to strap it to your back and drag it in a line behind you. Imagine that. I mean, it'd be like purgatory. <laughs> I flew this week to Narnia, which uh, via San Diego, so it wasn't very snowy when I got there. But uh, there's a conference I attend every year. It's sort of like me going to church for three days and getting 10 hours of lectures and and sermons and encouragements, singing, feasting, connecting with friends, making new friends. And this year's theme was C.S. Lewis and the Untamed God. So I couldn't, get the, I couldn't wait to get there, and I don't ever like to leave it to airline chance, so I fly out a day early. So I, they, the airline has 24 hours to get me where I need to be. And so this conference put on by the 1517 Network focused on C.S. Lewis, and so, of course, Narnia and Aslan are woven throughout this. And you don't need to be a Narnia fan or know much about Narnia to follow me here, but when the kids arrive in Narnia, it is not San Diego. It's like out here, but you at least get the beauty of snow. <laughs> and they get to Narnia, and they come to find out that it's always winter in Narnia, but never Christmas. I mean, imagine that, being in a place that's always winter and never Christmas, Always winter, and knowing there's supposed to be Christmas pretty early on in the winter, and it just never arrives. Always winter, never Christmas. But as these kids encounter a beaver family, the talking beavers, they hear that something might change because Aslan, the king, is on the move. Aslan's on the move. Perhaps he can melt away the snows of winter. Now, the kids naturally ask what we would, which is they come to find out that Aslan's a lion, 
and Susan speaks up and says, is this lion quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, my dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then the younger sister speaks up. Lucy asks, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Always winter, never Christmas, but Aslan is on the move. He's a lion. He's certainly not safe, but he's good. Unfortunately, the airline occasion of gaining baggage as you miss connections uh, is something that has been experienced in one way or another by all of us. Maybe not in an airline, but we know what it's like to have baggage. One of the speakers this weekend said, if you brought luggage, you also brought baggage. If you brought luggage, you also brought your baggage. We've all got baggage. And before we can take stock of the other kinds of baggage we carry, the first place the Reformation really starts is with an understanding, an honest understanding that we've got some serious God baggage. Yes, we have church baggage. Yes, we have life baggage. Yes, we have personal baggage that we've contributed to. But ultimately, we have God baggage. C.S. Lewis describes uh, humankind not as people in need of a fix, but rebels in need of laying down their arms. Because we have God baggage. If you've got God baggage, Jesus Christ can help. The only thing is that Jesus Christ can get obscured by all the Plato constructions that get built up and turn as, as dry as stone around him. And in Martin Luther's day, 500 years ago, he had some serious baggage with God. We're going to talk about his church baggage for a little bit, but first we have to be honest about where it starts. Luther had God baggage because the only God he knew, the only God he received, was the God that the church of his time delivered. On the back side of the sermon handout, there's a, a, a rather lengthy quote from Luther. This was something he wrote near the end of his life. They were putting all of his best works together in Latin for this library edition, and so he wrote a preface. So this is Luther later in life basically summarizing his conversion or his coming to the gospel. And we often think, oh, Luther, you know, he felt so guilty, he could never not feel guilty, and then he finally found the grace of Jesus. Yes, that's true. But notice, his main problem isn't that he just felt guilty before a gracious God. He felt guilty and hated God. So here's how he puts it in his words. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that God was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough 
that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments without having God add pain to pain by the Gospel and also by the Gospel threatening us with His righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately I just see him shaking the Scriptures. I beat upon St. Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, this is a quote from Romans 1.17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I, Martin Luther, began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, the passive righteousness with which merciful God makes us right by faith. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the Scriptures from memory. That's a humble brag. I ran through the Scriptures from memory and I found in other terms an analogy. As, for example, the work of God is that which God does in us. The power of God that which He makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which He makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. I think it's worth taking time on that because Luther inherited a church and he stood in the tradition of a church in which it was always purgatory and never gospel. It was always law and never mercy. And God was like a lion who only showed you the unsafe side and not the goodness. On another day, whether it's a newcomer's class or a Reformation study, we can talk about some of the baggage Luther had with the church. But let me summarize it to say, one of the common things we think about is how when Luther rediscovers the gospel through reading the scriptures, one of the things that had to go was purgatory. Because if God makes us alive in Christ, we don't need a thousand years in limbo to get washed up. The problem is, If Luther got rid of purgatory or limbo after this life to work out all the sins he didn't fix in this life, if he got rid of purgatory in the future, a lot of the people who inherited the Protestant Christian tradition rescued purgatory and took it from the future and put it right here in this life. And to this day, so many of the words you receive from church or the way that spiritual life is described is simply creating a purgatory on earth. 
in which Christ's righteousness is a goal to which you are not even close, instead of a gift of God's grace received through faith, delivered in the adoption of his sons and daughters through baptism, nourished in the table that draws us all sinners to an altar call to receive Christ. We didn't get rid of purgatory as Protestants. We just moved it to this life. And that's why the church always needs to be steadfast to God's word, to his word, so that we, so that God through his gifts can purge purgatory from our conscience, from our church obligations, from our understanding of Jesus. The four scriptures that we have today just give us four ways that we've received Christ by grace. The prophecy in Jeremiah says, they will know me, the Lord, by my mercy when I forgive their sin and forget their iniquity. And he gives a new heart. Like right down there. The second reading from Psalm 46 says, they shall know me by my very present help in time of trouble. And God gives us a mighty fortress. Third, the Romans reading teaches that they shall know me, the Lord, by my righteous sacrifice. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross for my sins. And we receive a victorious faith. And finally, the gospel. They shall know me by the freedom I give. Slaves don't have a permanent place, but the Son has a place forever. And the Son, Jesus Christ, gives to us His place in that eternal glory and bliss of the new creation. And those people in the gospel who suggest to Jesus that they've never been slaves of anyone, He dismisses them rather quickly. I mean, how can descendants of Moses ever say that we've never been slaves? How could people who are sticking up or sucking up to the Roman Empire, who's oppressing and in charge of their very country, how can they say they've never been enslaved to anyone? They don't even know how much baggage they possess. Because we have Christ wholly and completely, withholding nothing, because He is ours and we are His, we are flying free now and forever. Christ says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden with the purgatories of this present life. Take, I will take your baggage upon myself and I will give you my freedom. For I am gentle in spirit and have rest for the weary. You will have a new heart, a mighty fortress, a victorious faith, and a place forever. And we fly free. Flying free both now and forever, I think, is captured beautifully in the hymn called In Christ Alone. And since this hymn just came to me this morning, we're not singing it over there, but I'm going to invite you, if you wish, if you know the song, you can join me in singing the final verse of In Christ Alone as we close.
No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Amen.